What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine. It's Halloween week. Spooky is in the air. And we don't really know if there will be trick-or-treaters. But I I don't know. I kind of hope so, just to keep the festivities going. Obviously, we want to be safe this Halloween. We want to be healthy this Halloween. So with that being said, I thought it would be cool to have a Halloween-themed odd news of the week. And that comes from a Pennsylvania family that unveiled their secret weapon to keep trick-or-treating safe amid this COVID-19 pandemic, a treat-launching candy pult. That's right, a catapulting candy launcher um, to keep trick-or-treaters from a social distance, but also keeping them enjoying the Halloween festivities. This has been this has been one of the funnier um, things going around this week, just seeing like what people are planning on doing for trick-or-treaters. If there even are going to be trick-or-treaters, I've seen like a candy shoot coming from the second story down, you know, to the first story on on the sidewalk. I've seen this candy pult. Uh, I've seen individually bagged candy. It will be interesting. I hope that kids can still enjoy um, Halloween from a a safe distance and enjoy the festivities of trick-or-treating because who doesn't love candy? I mean, I was like, I I still am like one of the biggest fans of candy. (laughs) Anyways, uh, the Normal Guy Lazy Eye podcast is brought to you by the team over at Manscaped. Autumn is in the air and Manscaped is here to ensure you don't carve your pumpkins when you're grooming. And by pumpkins, we actually mean your boys downstairs. In fact, Manscaped is on a mission to change the way you approach to caring for your balls. Guys, we've talked about the Lawnmower 3.0. It is the Tesla of electric trimmers. Stop wasting your money on those cheap razors you get at a, at a grocery store, you get at a pharmacy, wherever. Stop wasting your money. If you really care about the things down there, If you really care about your own hygiene, you know Manscaped has the right answer. But I'm also here to talk to you about their new product, the new Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer. Guys, they use the same skin-safe technology to uh, within this new Weed Whacker to ensure that you're not going to nick your nose, you're not going to nick your ears, and let's be honest, no one likes nose hairs. I mean nobody. I think my girlfriend speaks for the entire population that they are the grossest thing ever. So if you have the problem, if you need to take care of it, like everyone should be doing, the new Weed Whacker is here to help you out. And I'm here to help you out. Guys, get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code LAZYEYE. And I'm not talking just to you gentlemen. Ladies, if your men in your life need to be taking care of their grooming, whether it be upstairs in their nose and their ears or downstairs, I'm here to help you out too. Christmas is right around the corner. The holiday season is here. So head over to manscaped.com and use the code LAZYEYE at checkout to get 20% off plus free shipping. That's right, 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code LAZYEYE. Make your balls a priority this fall. Now let's get to this week's show. Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast, a true eye-opening experience. So when I started this podcast back in August, a lot of people asked me, like, what type of guests do you want to have on the show? Who do you want to talk to? And I think I've done a good job of not answering that question because I like talking to just about anybody. I mean, on this show, we've had entrepreneurs, we've had content creators, we've had athletes, we've had comedians, and I I don't really have a specific person that I like to talk to more. And 
This week is a is another first for Normal Guy Lazy. We have our first author on the podcast, and reading is something that I know I need to get more into. I need to do it more often. And when this quarantine was happening in the summer, and there really wasn't much to do for the summer, I headed over to one of my favorite little stops in Brookline, Massachusetts, the Brookline Booksmith, and I picked up this book called Out East, A Memoir of a Montauk Summer. And as cliche as it sounds, like this is the most cliche way to explain it, but I read the back and I thought, wow, this would be a really fun read for the summer and a really easy read. And I was actually blown away. It completely changed my thought of this book in all the good ways. Like I was, I was not expecting it to be written the way that it was. And the author, John Glenn, has done an incredible job telling this story. It's it's so personable. It's so relatable. Really, anyone that reads this book will find a way to resonate with the message. And I mean, it has been critically acclaimed and rightfully so. You know, a cosmopolitan best book of 2019. The Alper Magazine uh, named it one of its best books. And Newsweek called it the best book of the summer. So I just, I obviously had to reach out and and talk to this author, John Glenn. He comes from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, and uh, he went to the um, this other school in Boston called Boston College. Um, I don't like to to reference it as much because I do prefer the school down in Rhode Island a little bit better. But uh, he he um, so we had this great conversation, and I'm so excited for you to hear this interview. So I'm gonna. I'm going to stop talking so that you can hear all of John's story. So without further ado, here is John Glenn. Awesome. Well, I want to welcome on a very special guest. Um, If you know me, you know that I'm not a big reader, but I was at the Brookline Booksmith just a couple weeks ago doing some quarantine activities, trying to find something new. And I came across this book. So I had to bring him on because I couldn't put this down. We have John Glenn. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Out East, A Memoir of a Montauk Summer. Now, John, thank you so much for coming on. This is going to be, uh, I, I'm super excited about this interview. Thank you. No, I'm really, I'm really pumped to do this. And um, I'm glad we could do it through, uh, through the computer too. Yeah, some good social, social distancing practices here. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, John, I finished the book this morning and I can't wait to dive into the story of it all. But I want to take us back a little bit and start at the beginning. As I say on my show a lot, um, every story has a beginning. So I always start there. You grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, um, right down by the Connecticut border. Mm-hmm. What was life like growing up in kind of that small town, Massachusetts, you know, Western Massachusetts little town there? Yeah. Oh, uh, let's just dive right into my, my childhood and all of my <laughs> exactly. darkest secrets. No, I, um, I had a really awesome childhood. Mm-hmm. I was really, really uh, lucky. I, I lived in... Um, like you said, the small town called Longmeadow, which is a suburb of Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, and I, I grew up an, an only child. Um, but I had on my mom's side, there were 16 cousins and like a classic Massachusetts, like family, I feel like (laughs) really like this was like the big Catholic families, like the rhythm method was not working like my mom is one of six um and there are just people in western mass have just seemed to have lived there forever and everyone sort of knows everyone or is related to everyone and 
I had eight cousins within a three-year age range of me, um, seven boys and, and one girl. And during the summers, we were just sort of like herded through childhood together. Right. You know, we would all go to, in the summers, we would all go to the town pool or to, you know, to one of my aunt's houses to, you know, to play basketball or, um, you know, uh, eat PB and J's or whatever, but we were always together and it was yeah. this big, this big group. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I've lived in New York now for almost 10 years, but I'll, I'll always consider Western mass home for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. I still use Wicked as an adverb. <laughs> then you're still then you're still New England in, the, yeah. in that in that regard. <laughs> but you you make references to them quite a lot in the book. But it sounds like your mom and dad were the, like the cool parents on the block. Your yeah. your house is always like the let's go hang out at John's or like you know it, it just seemed like your parents were the cool parents growing up. I always say that like they're my my only redeeming quality is my <laughs> parents. Like I'm pretty sure that like half my friends are only my friends because they want to hang out with my parents. They mm -hmm. are, they're just really, really great. And I think as an only child too, there is sort of a special bond between um, only children and their parents. Um, and, you know, I was, I was really lucky with them and I, I'm really close with them and I'm actually spending the week with them right now yeah. um, uh, while they're on vacation and I'm sort of working remotely. So um, yeah, they're, they're phenomenal. Yeah. And then, so growing up in Longmeadow, were you big into sports? Like, were you like kind of the quintessential, like, you know, neighborhood kid, always playing different sports, always, you know, doing different activities? Yeah. I feel like I did. Yeah. I like did all the things, you know, I, yeah. um, I, uh, I, I came from a big, we're a big basketball family. Um, some of my older cousins um, went on to were you know, played varsity in high school and went on to play in college. And some of my earliest memories are actually going to their games on, on Friday nights and, and cheering them on. And, um, you know, I was, I was really big into basketball growing up and, you know, we were, I remember being a little kid and, and pretending, you know, pretending we were Duke and I was Bobby <laughs> Hurley and someone else was Christian Leitner and another cousin was right. Grant Hill and we'd play for hours. Um, yeah, I played, you know, I played soccer and had a short, short lived um, time playing um, t-ball and um, coach pitch baseball, but baseball was not for me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think I was sort of a good kid. Like I, I, um, I like did well in school and liked to be um, like, I was well behaved. I like to not cause trouble. Um, yeah. I enjoyed school. Um, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause the reason I asked is like, you know, growing up, like kids aren't like, I don't know, maybe they like, at least as I was a kid, like I wasn't like drawn to literature. So I wanted to ask like, what, what made you like get, like what made you draw to, to the literature in English? Yeah. You, it's so funny. I, you know, I, some of my very, very early memories from, from, you know, being like three and four, and I can remember being read to by my mom and my grandmother. And, you know, every night my mom, I, I'd have graham crackers and milk and my mom would read me like a story. Mm -hmm. And she, um, 
she's retired now, but she was a reading teacher for, you know, three decades, um, wow. a reading specialist. And so, it, and she's the most voracious reader I know. So it, growing up, books were always sort of a big part, just a big part of our, our life. But I, I mean, I feel like I'm part of that whole generation that like, I liked, I liked reading, you know, in the right. summer, I'd like do the library challenge to try and like win like the Pizza Hut pizza or whatever yeah, those it was. words or pages. I forget what it was. Yeah. Was yeah. <laughs> like, those stickers and like, okay, yeah. cool. But it really wasn't, I feel like it really wasn't until like Harry Potter when I was in like maybe fifth grade where I was mm. just like, holy crap. Like, but like this, this is insane. Like I want more of this. Um, and that sort of got me, got me into reading. Um, but, and, and and writing too. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've always sort of enjoyed creative writing. It's always been kind of just a, an out, an outlet for me, a way to kind of take the ideas or the emotions that I'm feeling and, and sort of, transmute them into something that's completely different from my own experience but also exactly the same as my own experience in some way you know mm -hmm. like the same emotional the same emotional truths but you know in a different story um, um but yeah yeah I've, I've always sort of books have definitely always been a part of my life yeah and then so you went off to to boston college you got a Boston College alum here and a Providence College alum here. So two very <laughs> similar styles of colleges. Obviously, we don't want to get into the weeds of who's better and who's not. But just kind of the, the small Catholic college, you know, big name, obviously. Everyone's very familiar with, with Boston College, but it's still that tight-knit community of a college. Did you feel like it was similar to kind of the community you had growing up as a kid? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I went to what I thought was a pretty small high school. I think there were maybe 250 kids in my graduating class. Mm -hmm. And because I had sort of gone through, you know, at, in, there were, I always went to public school and it was, there were three elementary schools, two middle schools, and then one high school. And so you right. feed all the way through. And because of sports, you tend to meet everyone from all the other schools. By the time you get to high school, you know everyone in your grade, right. more or less. Yeah. Um, so it definitely felt like a very sort of that small tight knit community. And then when I went to BC, it was a little bigger. It was, you know, I think there were maybe 2,500 kids in, in our grade, but still had that like very knowable quality to it. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was, it was bigger than, than high school, but still by the end of the four years felt, felt small and it was certainly, um, felt tight knit. It was, I, I mean, I loved BC. It was the best, the best four years I could have asked for. Um, yeah. and I'm still very close with all of my friends from college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think Providence has the same redeeming qualities. We, we had about a thousand per grade, so definitely a little bit smaller, but I feel like East it's a type of college. And, and I think BC is the same in that, like by the, by your sophomore, junior year, you're seeing the same people. And like people think like that, that can be bad, but I thought like, at least people know my name. At least I'm not this number in a lecture hall, right? Like it's, it feels like I'm actual person here at, at college. Yeah, totally. There's, um, yeah, th there's, it's funny how even within a school of, you know, 6,000 or 10,000, you can, you can find your, find your niche, find your mm -hmm. group. Uh, yeah. 
and and feel like uh yeah you can you can feel sort of like that create that sense of community definitely so right after bc you went off and worked at a law firm in boston for two years uh was that just like the best first job ever (laughs) oh my god that's so funny i had did i mention i don't remember if i mentioned not in the book i did some linkedin creeping before (laughs) my research (laughs) oh my god i love it yeah you know i worked at um i worked at a corporate immigration law firm for two years and was like toying with the idea of going to law school Mm. i took the lsats even and wow so you did take a big step i I was like really yeah for a minute i was like really going for it but you know i i think like just working at that law firm and having that experience made me realize that this isn't what i want to do for the the rest of my life it's too it was too much of a commitment to go to law school financially or otherwise and it just wasn't it was it didn't feel something in my gut just told me this isn't the right path. Um, and, you know, I had, I, it was a small firm and I got to know a lot of the lawyers who, you know, sort of became like mentors too. And they kind of said the same thing, you know, mm. they, they felt like, you know, I'd had, had a lot of long conversations with some of them and they said, you know, the, the, don't do it unless you're a hundred percent you know, really excited because it yeah, is. I feel, like, I feel like pursuing law is something you have to be completely committed to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. It's not like getting a tattoo and that sort of commitment, but it's like, <laughs> this is going to be your life, you know? It's going to be your life. Yeah, I mean, having a law degree, it's like, it's such a versatile degree and like, it's it's definitely, you can do a lot of things with it, but um, yeah, it just didn't feel like the right move for me. But I do look back fondly on that time of my life it was two years and, and I'm still, um, I'm still, cl- there were a lot of legal assistants who right. had all, we had all sort of just graduated college. It was all sort of our, our first real job. And, um, it's, it's funny. One of, um, one of my friends from, um, from that time, we were legal assistants together. She was also sort of writing at night. Um, and we would talk about writing all the time and her book actually publishes tomorrow. Oh, how yeah. funny. She wrote this amazing novel. It's getting a ton of amazing early press. Um, and her name's uh, Gabby Burnham and her book's called It Is Wood, It Is Stone. And it's it's amazing. And it's so cool um, how, you know, we had this dream basically uh, yeah. ba- all back like, God, back 10 years ago. Um, and we're just sort of chipping away at it. And yeah. and now it, it all sort of came together. Um, and then in sort of the same time was kind of very cool. cool. Yeah. Very cool. So in, in 2010, you moved to New York City and studied at NYU to go get your master's in English. What was the goal? So obviously, you know, you'd mentioned like law school was kind of out of the picture at this point. What was the goal going into your time at NYU? So I, I knew going into that, that I was either going to go onto the PhD um, and try and, and become a professor and go into academia or go in, into publishing. Um, and I didn't know much about publishing at the time, but I knew it was in New York. And <laughs> by, that's like kind of all I knew. I knew it was centered in New York. And that if I was in NYU, 
studying English, I was at least adjacent to, I was, I was at least within spitting distance of the publishing world. Right. Um, and within like the first few weeks of like maybe four or five weeks of um, my first semester, I immediately realized like I am like way over my skis here. Like I am not cut out for academia. Um, I just, um, I loved it. It was in some ways like the best year of my life, just being able to just throw myself so deeply into one academic pursuit and spend all day, every day reading the best books ever written. It was the greatest. Um, but I, I knew that like, I just wasn't at the level where I could, you know, spend seven years writing a dissertation and then, you know, with really no, no guarantees of a job after that, it just, it felt too, too daunting. Um, but at the same time, I took this class through NYU's publishing school called Book Editing and Acquisition, because um, you were allowed to take one class outside of the English department. So I took that, and um, it was taught by this um, editor, um, Brenda Copeland, and and it was awesome. I loved it, and I I thought like, oh, okay, like I could see myself potentially as an editor. I, I'm into this. Um, so from there, while I was finishing my thesis, um, I, I interned at Norton, which is a, pu- a publishing company in right. the city. Yeah, and so during your, so during your time as an editor, um, you've kind of worked on some interesting uh, projects, I would say, covering kind of a wide range of, of genres. Do you have a favorite style yet that you like to work on, particularly as an editor? Oh man, you know, I I think what I love the the most is that sort of is the mix, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love one day I can work on you know a very literary novel. The next day I might be working on a thriller. The day after that I could be working on Rick Ross's memoir, and yeah, then I'm that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the it's just it's it's always something new and something something fresh and it it sort of mirrors the the way I read which is very eclectically Mm. um I don't know if that's a word (laughs) we'll take it um but we'll take we'll take it all right yeah um but check it later (laughs) (laughs) yeah back check it um but yeah I've always read really widely and so I love being able to publish widely too Mm. um and uh yeah it's it's it I, I love my job yeah. So I have, we have to ask this because I saw it on your Instagram and it's like, obviously this is, this is your story and I can't wait to get into it, but I have to ask, what was it like working with on Rick Ross's hurricanes? Oh my God. It was, I mean, it was amazing. It was so, well, first of all, uh, the book is fantastic. Mm. It's written. He, he, his co-writer was Neil Martinez Belkin, who, also co-wrote um, Gucci Mane's autobiography. Um, and You're well-versed in the topic. <laughs> yes, yeah. And and the Gucci Mane book is fantastic too. And and Neil right. basically, like, Neil can take, like, A, like, like, A-plus source material and turn it into, like, a triple, an A-triple-plus book. Like, mm-hmm. he pulls out the, like, 
the like all the like literary chords like it almost becomes this like sort of Shakespearean arc in his hands and Rick, Rick Ross's story is just it's really a window I mean it's so many things but um, for one it's sort of a window into an era you know he came of age in the 70s and 80s during the height of the Miami crack epidemic and right you know, the book sort of explores that world and you see how all of the obstacles that he had to overcome to become who he is and how everything he he went through sort of shaped the type of artist he is. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's so funny. So I'm mostly from, from an editor, from, in terms of the editorial process, I, I worked very closely with Neil. Right. Um, and then Neil would then work with really closely with Rick Ross to, to get the words on the page. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, Rick Ross in, in one interview, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but he said it. And I think it's I mean, actually. listen to the podcast. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's actually super refreshing you know someone asked of like you know what was it like you know in this portion of the book and he's like he's like I haven't I haven't read it he's like I he's like I haven't read the book and he's like I but then he had like such a good response he's like I didn't need to like I lived it yeah and it's so true and I loved that so much because like you know, it would have been really easy for him to be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I, you know, he could have, like, said, he could have said some, like, His agent could have told him exactly what to say, right. It was just, like, super honest and, like, authentic and, and like, respectable, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows you what kind of guy, it, like, it shows you what kind of guy he is, you know? Yeah um and and but like getting to meet him was a real was a real joy he's awesome we actually have another book signed up with him um uh, and and it's coming out uh 2021 i believe um yeah that's awesome so let's get into your book right i like i said in the beginning i absolutely couldn't put this down the second i picked it up um so audis is the story of a summer in montauk with a tight woven crew for sure um friendships conflicts even epiphanies blossom throughout the story but it really gets into what i think a a tale of self-identity um so as you've been working in publishing for nine plus years i don't want to call out your age um was the goal always to write your own book was that like like one day I'm going to put my own words on my, my own pages. You know, I, I had always sort of written on the side. It was mm-hmm. just something I would do at night or early mornings before work um, or on the weekends, just as it was just always my, my outlet. Um, but I never, so even if I had like some aspirations of maybe one day writing a book and publishing a book, I definitely never thought I would write a memoir <laughs> and I never um thought it would be the this book yeah. uh, I started writing out east I mean I did, didn't even have a title when I started writing it I just I started writing it as like something for for me alone just as a way to sort of like I had like all these emotions it was a way to kind of like give give that story a beginning a middle and end and yeah. take it outside of my brain Right. And have it exist somewhere else was sort of cathartic. 
Yeah. So like, did that process start that summer or what did it, did it come to you like maybe a year or two later? You're like, maybe I, I need to write this down. That's, that's a good question. So, um, no, like I, I should just like preface too. So the book is about, uh, summer I spent, like you said, in a Montauk share house with, there were, I think there were 31 of us in the house. Um, and it was sort of a really transformative summer about, you know, first love and heartache and self-doubt. And um, it was really about how our, our group of friends became a family. Right. Um, and, and while I was living that summer I never in a million years thought like oh one I'm gonna write about this is gonna be a book (laughs) a book and one day I'm gonna be on a podcast talking about it never in a million years did I think that 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 was a possibility Mm -hmm. um but then I started at you know that that was my first summer um out in Montauk and then I'd I'd gone a few a few more sub summers um and I started to realize how our house was sort of one in in like this constellation of share houses out in Montauk and in the Hamptons and together they formed this like very narrative rich subculture and Mm -hmm. no one had really written about it before and at, at least in in book form um and I thought like damn like I this should be someone should write about this and you know Toni Morrison has this quote that I I paraphrase that um if there's a book you want to read and it doesn't exist yet you have to write it right so I started just writing I started writing thinking it would maybe be a novel actually mm-hmm. um and but like very quickly very early on i realized like no the story really resided that's my first summer that's yeah. where it was and it, it and it really needed to take the form of a memoir mm-hmm. now from the onset of the book you tell the story of a christmas party in your new york city apartment uh, you invite 86 people through Facebook, and I'm thinking, like, okay, this guy is a pretty popular kid. Like, what's this book going to be about? But as you get more and more into that first chapter, you can even tell amongst these these crowds of people, it's 86. I don't even know how you fit that many people in that kind of apartment. Um, but you can tell there's this sense of loneliness, um, and I think we see that a lot being portrayed in, in social media now. Obviously, you know, kind of in the beginning, maybe social media wasn't as big, especially if you're inviting people via Facebook. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> they, you can see all these, these cool places on their Instagrams. You can see them with all these people. But inside, that's like, that's all you see on the surface. What was, what was that like for you? Yeah, no, totally. It, um, <laughs> 86 people. Oh my it's God. I'm, I, You're I, t- right from the book. <laughs> I know. Well, I, that, I mean, that was like one of the cool things about, like, I had this like digital footprint that I could draw on to fact check. So like if I still could go in and look like at the invite and be like, Holy Christ, it was 86 people. But it was also, I was living with two of the, two of my um, friends at the time. So I had two roommates. So I think between the three of us, we did, we did get to 87. We're douchebags, you know, we're (laughs) like, anyway, (laughs) John's invite. Did you see how many people are on that list? 
<laughs> it was, I mean, it, it was ridiculous, but. Um, going to the plaza, what is this? It was so absurd. And no, yeah. but yeah, like in our little New York apartment, like how does that even happen? But, um, but to your, to your question, yeah, you know, at that time I was 27 years old and mm. on paper, my life looked perfect. I had this amazing group of friends. I, I had this dream job as an editorial assistant at, um, at, at Scribner, a publishing company. Um, I um, had a great family. I like I, things were like things were going well, but on the inside, I was struggling with this intense, intense feeling of loneliness, and it clouded over everything. Like I, I, it just shaded every aspect of my life. It was almost like a like a dark lens through which I saw the world, and mm-hmm. I would lie awake at night feeling just intensely unlovable, and knowing something was wrong, but like not knowing what it was. And that was the worst. That's, that was what sort of tortured me so much was not knowing what is wrong, but something is definitely, definitely wrong. Um, and that was sort of where I was emotionally, um, going into that, that experience. And then you know, actually at that Christmas party, that was where my friend, um, my friend Mike, who was organizing our share house asked me, you know, and, you know, these share houses get organized like very early. They get right. organized in um, usually like six months in advance. So he, he was telling me and, and my friend Evan that, you know, he was organizing a house and did we want to join? And it was $2,000 for a, a half share, which was eight weeks eight week weekends mm-hmm. and I didn't have $2,000. So I told him no. Um, but then a couple weeks after that, um, in early January, my grandmother Kiki died and she was, she was sort of like our family's matriarch. She was my yeah. first best friend. She, um, uh, she was sort of like my guiding spirit in life. And when she died, it really affected me. And then a, a couple weeks after that, though, I get this this card in the mail, and in it is this apparently Kiki in like the last years of her life had like accrued this little nest egg, and yeah. it got evenly divided among all the cousins, and the check was for exactly two thousand dollars. Yeah, I get to sign. And yeah, so like I called my mom and was like, this is wild. Like I like I won't I I can't spend it for this, but like I, I just had got asked to do this share house and it was the same amount of money. And you know, my mom was like, Maybe it's a sign. Like maybe, you know, you know, Kiki would want you to do that. So I I thought, okay, well maybe that's the case. And so I sort of felt like there was this element of like serendipity and fate that was kind of propelling me into that summer to begin with while I was sort of internally silently struggling with all of these feelings of loneliness yeah so there's so there's those two events the Boston uh, sorry the the Christmas party and then and then your grandmother passing and and in in turn right getting the exact amount for the share house but there's a third event um then you tell the readers right my summer started in the winter and to your point earlier, I was like, Oh, it's because there's planning involved. And especially if it's a share house with 30 plus people, like this stuff takes time. But 
there's there was a sequence of events that occurred in what you say in order for this summer to have happened. Um, there was something that really, really big happened that happened on, on a ski trip. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, so I was up in in Stratton um, for a weekend with some friends. Um, one of our, our friends' parents had a house that we got to stay in for free. So we went up there um, and I, and the night before we, you know, we went out drinking and then the next day I woke up like so hungover, but I had to, had to get on to the slope. I, right. I'm like, I'm, I'll muscle through it. And I made it maybe like half day and I was just pretty exhausted. And we had taken a couple cars up to, to the mountain. And so my friend Caroline was like, oh, just like take my car back. And um, so I was driving down the road and um, it had just stormed and the roads were still slick and I was going really slow. You know, I was, I'm a super cautious driver to begin with. And um, I, I was sort of, I, I knew that the weather conditions weren't optimal. Um, but the car, as I was sort of going down a hill, the car started to skid and slide. And then all of a sudden the wheel wouldn't, wasn't working. It sort of locked up and I could feel the car slowly sliding. And I saw this embankment that uh, off the side of the road and the car just rolled off and tipped over um and and came to rest and uh the car was totaled um but i was i didn't have a scratch on me i i was i was like somehow perfectly fine um i was shaken up to my core um and and i really I sort of attribute it to my grandmother. Like I imagine her sort of putting like a force field around me or something or protecting me. But I think like, first of all, I was racked with guilt for, um, for totaling my, my friend's car. Mm -hmm. Um, that was, it was awful. It was, um, embarrassing and, um, terrifying and, um, I felt just so horrible that, you know, that that happened. Um, but it also sort of, I realized just how, how like, you know, and, and if things had like turned a different way, like by an inch or, you know, who knows if I would have died. Um, and I think like having that really close scrape with death, sort of it was kind of not necessarily a wake-up call um but maybe a wake-up call it not necessarily a wake-up call because i didn't know what i was what it was a wake-up call for right um but i just knew that it felt like i hadn't lived yet mm-hmm. i was it felt like i almost died before i even got the chance to live and that was sort of that added a sense of sort of urgency and immediacy to kind of everything um in my life at that time yeah and so you know kind of leading up to that did you kind of feel like 
Montauk was going to be the answer? Was it kind of like going in, you're like, this, I don't know what this is going to be, but like everything that's happened in the past four months is lead, has led up to this. And this hopefully will give me some sense of like new beginning or like you said, like a wake up call. Totally. I mean, I'm all, I've always been like a big summer creature and kind of, so I just lived for summer. And I remember in those like winter and early spring months, just thinking, all right, I just need to get to Memorial Day and then things will be different. And I'm entering sort of something new, something completely different. It was also at a time in my life where, you know, once you start entering your late twenties, it becomes harder to make new friends yeah um maybe that's not the case for everyone but you know people start pairing up and getting married and they're not sort of like you know big um big friend groups that you're you know going out to the bars with every everyone got a babysitter or or, yeah right right. Yeah. yeah people even you know by then are starting to you know move away or you know their priorities just shift and it's it's sort of um it's just like the natural progression of, of things. And, but I, because I hadn't, because I wasn't dating anyone and, you know, a lot of my friends were pairing off. I did sort of, it felt like a winnowing almost Mm -hmm. of the, the people in, in the world around me. And Montauk felt like a possibility to sort of, to open that up again to the, these were new people that, um, that I could meet and sort of expand my, my, my network right. in a way that like you rarely have an opportunity to, mm-hmm. um, at that age. Yeah. So Montauk wasn't like anything you'd ever, um, experienced before as far as just like this, the beach city itself, right. You grew up going to the Connecticut shores. Um, but like going from, you know, like the city going across long Island, like what was that experience for you like taking all that and seeing the Hamptons and everything? (laughs) (laughs) It was super, it was super jarring in some ways. Um, Yeah. I mean, I grew up going to the, the Connecticut shore um, to this place called Hawksness beach. And it was the best, like the, it was, it was not the, it's the Long Island sound. So it wasn't the open ocean. So there was definitely like, even just in the, um, and like the geography was was wildly different going to like the the beaches in Montauk like Ditch Plains and some of the other beaches that are on the open ocean side seeing the huge crashing waves and it just it was visually very different than the beach experience that that I had growing up but you know we we always we would stay in these tiny cottages you know with we cram you know there were 30 of us split between two or three tiny, tiny cottages. Oh, right. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. You know, no air conditioning, no TV, um, no, no anything. Um, and we loved it. It was the best. Yeah, it was just the best. And, you know, we always joked around, like, when we were little, me and my cousins, we'd build sandcastles, like, we would find, like, cigarette butts on the beach and, like, stick them in the sandcastles. Is like, oh, yeah. You know, like, it wasn't necessarily like this like pristine like um Hamptons magazine beach that I grew up going to right. um and there certainly wasn't any sense of like an adjacent nightlife either like that right. um so 
yeah so it was definitely um it was definitely something really um new and unexpected and um you know required me to kind of pit, like pivot um my mindset a little we're going to take a quick break from this interview to hear from our new sponsors over at IPS Surf and Water Sports this new partnership i'm so stoked about IPS Surf is an exclusive water sport complex located right on Long Lake in the beautiful lake region of Maine. They offer personalized instruction for a variety of different water sports, including wake surfing, water skiing, and many more. Originally from Westford, Massachusetts, founder and world champion wake surfer Ian Scott found his love and passion for water sports at a very early age. He's dedicated to sharing his years of action sport wisdom with his clients and unlocking that true potential in people that they didn't even realize they had. Guys, entering a new element, especially the water, for many people can be an intimidating journey. So IPS Surf is here to provide a safe and specialized instruction to ensure their customers leave with a smile on their face and that feeling of accomplishment. With professional and qualified instructors, best-in-class towboats, and equipment IPS Surf is more than ready to host you and your crew out on the lake this summer. It's just two and a half hours north of Boston. And to show our appreciation to our listeners, IPS Surf will be offering two very, very sick packages. We're going to have the normal guy package and we're going to have the lazy eye package. So let me tell you about these. All right. So the normal guy package, you're going to get 20% off a two hour individual session. So you can bring yourself and one of your friends with an IPS surf uh, instructor. This is more for the people that are really have an appetite to learn. The normal guy package gives you the best opportunity to focus and improve your skills out on the water. This two hour session will allow you for that ultimate one-on-one time with a professional instructor centralized on your development. Now, the lazy eye package. This is gonna be your squad package. This is gonna give you 20% off a full day. That's six hours out on the lake with your squad. You could bring eight, nine, 10 of your closest friends. It's a perfect way to get the whole crew out there enjoying the magic of what IPS Surf has to offer. The lazy eye session will include everything you need for an exceptional day out on the lake with over seven different water sports to choose from. Guys, seven different water sports. You're gonna be able to mix and match with your favorite activities for the perfect session you have been dreaming about. We have all been dreaming about what next summer is gonna look like. This is an excellent idea for any family or friends outings, birthdays. It's just the perfect day out on the lake. And if you haven't seen any footage of like what IPS Surf has to offer, let me try and paint this picture. So one of the sports that they offer is called wake surfing, which is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen down on the lake. It's an endless wave created by the boat, and it basically allows you to surf this like clean and customizable wave with nothing directly attaching you to the boat. So they offer this like, it's just this like, you're you're surfing, like I'm a SoCal kid, you're out there surfing, but you're out on the lake. They also have your favorites, including like water skiing and wakeboarding. They also offer more of those like technical sports for more of our advanced folks looking to step up their adventure game here, which is like barefoot skiing. You've seen those videos on on Instagram, wake kiting and surface latest phenomenon, hydrofoiling. So don't just take my word for it. Go visit IPS Surf and Water Sports up in Brigton, Maine, just two and a half hours from Boston to see for yourselves what the hype is all about. Go follow them on Instagram at IPS Surf and go over to IPSSurf.com to book those sessions. Now back to the interview. So let's talk about the house better known as The Hive. It was a shared house and at points in time there were 
30 people in the house at one time. Uh, do, how many people did you know going into the house before the summer had kicked off? Very few. So yeah, there were like 30, I want to say, I can't remember if it was 31 or 32 people. It was, um, I knew, I knew maybe like two or three mm-hmm. of the people in the house going into it. And, um, the house itself was this sort of old, um, split level house. It was set on a hill, um, kind of tucked away and it looked almost like a, uh, we described it as like a haunted ski chalet. It was like, <laughs> um, a very like seventies, like it had shag carpet. It had wood paneled wall all over the place. There was this like old record player um that didn't work but there were all these like dusty records around and it was definitely um it was definitely charming in like a in 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 its own way and definitely haunted too (laughs) um but it it you know the way the schedule was organized there were um everyone had a half share so there were usually between anywhere between maybe seven, 10, 12, 15 people on any given weekend, which, um, you know, even though it was a pretty big house, it was still, it was still a lot of people and you just. Seven people in any size house is a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And it was, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, we we, like, we made it work with like air mattresses and you're sharing rooms, you're, you know, taking, you know, two minute showers or cold showers because there's not enough hot water to go around. You're right. usually sort of fending for yourself for, for dinner, which is usually like a, a hot dog or like. Yeah, the, the meals you described in the, in the book, it was like straight out of, I mean, you went right back to college. It was like oh, butter sandwiches, cut up hot dogs and eggs. Like Totally, totally. Yeah, it was just like whatever you could find. But like everyone in the house was, a lot of people in the house were like just big personality people looking to just have fun, really open to meet new people. And the house, what was interesting about the house was it was half guys, half girls. And among the guys, half were gay and half were, half were straight, Mm. which was, it was a really sort of cool dynamic um, in, in terms of, um, you know, that the relationship between the, the straight, like finance bros is what I call them in the book because (laughs) almost all of them worked in finance. Yeah. Um, And then, and then the gay guys too. Mm. Yeah. So right away, like you're, when you're first meeting these people, you talk about like, they're putting people in, in like these buckets. Now, obviously everyone's kind of like in the same house and everyone's very accepting, but it's still like, you got the finance bros, as you called it, you got the gays and then the, and then basically it's like, then the girls, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, they already kind of had an idea of like where they were going to put you. Did you always feel like people had an idea of who you were? I mean, I didn't really have an idea of who I was myself. Um, so yeah, I remember sort of talking with one of my housemates and, and being like, Oh, well, what bucket am I in? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because I didn't work in finance. Um, and at the time I didn't, I identify as gay. And so of course that, that has since changed and right. a, a lot and, and what catalyzed it were the events of that summer 
Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So your first weekend seemed like something outside of like a classic, like you might as well just filmed it and call it like a summer college party, mm-hmm. you know, during like a, like a long weekend summer getaway, you know, a lot of drinking, a lot of dancing, a lot of bars. Uh, but when you left and went back to the city, what was that feeling like that first weekend back or that first Monday back into the yeah. city? Oh man, it was, it was bad. I mean, <laughs> it always is right. Like it's right. hard coming. It's always hard. Like when you're with your friends and, or whenever you have a good weekend, it's yeah. the, the come down is, is hard and, you know, readjusting back into to work. And I always get like the Sunday scaries really hard is mm-hmm. what I call, you know, what, what we all refer to them as, but but this was something different. Like, you know, normally when people talk about the Sunday scaries, it's, it, it's connected to work. But for me, it was sort of this sense of like existential dread is sort of the best way I can describe it. It was this sense of, um, of absolute doom. Um, that sounds so dramatic, I know, but no, I, I think people feel it all the time. Like, I mean, I, I've been on the Cape on, on some summer weekends and just that drive, like we would stay all the way up in like Wellfleet, Tro and P-Town. And that's a long drive to get yeah. back to Boston. And you're just constantly thinking like, oh my gosh, I have a whole week ahead of me. What felt like a, a day, which was obviously three days, what felt like a, like a one night sleep is now over and it's back to the normal work week. For sure. And I think like, it was sort of for, for me, like when I think back to those, to those moments they're compounded too by this sense of um this real sense of like not knowing who i am right um that really just sort of heightened and distorted and and twisted any minor degree of anxiety that i had it was like adding kerosene to it basically and lighting a match it was um it was much more um, I think during those moments when I felt like already like a little vulnerable from, mm. you know, the, from, you know, a, a really fun weekend and being back on my own, you know, it, it sort of, those were the moments where I went really dark, where my mind went really, really dark and where mm. I felt like I'm missing something in my life. I'm never going to connect with another person no one's going to love me. I don't even like, I don't love myself. Like it was just this spiral basically of this voice in my head, just telling me I was worthless. And it was, Oh, it was really, really, it was bad. Yeah. So so I wanted to ask, so, you know, a trip or a a summer that you were thinking like, this is, this is where I'm going to find myself. This is where I'm going to like break out of what what I'm in right now before it happened for me or happened to me in the winter were those first few weeks, like they were not therapeutic. They were, did you feel like they were doing more harm than good at that point? Um, it's interesting. Like, I, I feel like they were, um, they were my way of escaping. Like, I think my baseline was, that sense of loneliness. So those weekends were an escape from it. Mm. I got to geographically escape the city. I got to be in what felt like a place that was very far away um, from my my regular life. Um, And I got to sort of not deal with, I didn't have to look inward 
Um, or at least I thought I wasn't going to have to look in hard. Yeah. Um, but then things started to happen that forced me to also look inward during that time. Mm-hmm. And it sort of led to this extremely like emotionally intense um, reckoning basically over the course of that summer. Um, yeah. So, and then within the story, right, you're obviously, you're going back and forth um, to Montauk and back to New York, but you're also going back to and from your childhood and kind of playing into, it almost feels like this is all meant to be because of all the events that happened in your childhood. How did you, like, how did you get back to like, oh, well, this, this memory at Montauk made me feel like this memory from my childhood? You know, it was, um, that was probably the hardest part of writing this book was, I didn't really, like, my, and this is why, like, even as an editor, like, like, editors need editors, you know, like, I had an (laughs) amazing editor who was like, we need more of your, your childhood, we need more scenes with your grandmother and more scenes from your childhood. And I, I felt like my childhood was so like boring. It was sort of, it was sort of like, it was great. Like I didn't really, I couldn't think of anything that felt like worthy of elevating to a scene, you know, that felt like dramatic, that felt like it could, it could carry the weight of like being dramatized on the page. And, and it was hard, it was really hard to, to think through that. But then slowly, you know, certain moments started to emerge. And I think what sort of unlocked it for me was when I realized that, you know, in some ways, this like profusion of people, this like sort of um, family, this like, like real, like sort of group of people that I was traveling through that summer with very much mirrored the abundance of cousins that I traveled through the summers with as a kid. And so there were sort of these natural echoes between, um, between those two experiences. And that's sort of what, what opened the door for me to kind of put those two, um, those two aspects of my life in, in counterpoint in some ways. Yeah. So I have to ask, so, but, excuse me, by the 4th of July weekend, you made a note um, that you were cutting your family time into to, into being in Montauk. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about in the beginning of the show, you have such a supportive family, a family that's, you know, the best of the best, the fun family to be around. And like as supportive as they were in the beginning of you going to Montauk, did you see that your family started to worry about your time, where you were spending your time? So my family, yeah, like they definitely, my parents definitely did because they were only seeing one side of it. Like I, um, you know, while I was out there, I was falling in love with one of my housemates, a guy for the first time. And I was essentially like a, like a rational thinking adult experiencing like the gutting intense emotions of like what most people experience in high school. Right. Like it was, and it was like such a mind fuck. And so I was like trying to make sense of, of all of that. Like the real, like the intense highs and like all, all this, this, like these visceral feelings that just sort of were all consuming, you know, in the way that like a crush becomes all consuming, especially a first crush and a right. first love. And 
I, so like it, th my parents were sort of seeing hints of what was going on with that, but only, but with no context, they had no yeah. idea that I was, that I was experiencing that. They just saw this like, Oh my God, who, why is John behaving so erratically? Why is like, like back in 17 year old John? Right. Right. Like why are, why does he seem sort of, sort of so like, um, uh, emotionally haywire right, right now? They didn't know because I wasn't letting anyone in at least at first to, mm -hmm. to that, to that internal struggle that I was going through. Yeah. So they, yeah, so they were rightfully um, concerned uh, <laughs> about about my experience, and they blamed it on Montauk. They blamed it on, oh, well, you're it's this crazy party um, scene, which it certainly was, um, and and they weren't they weren't wrong about that. But it was more than that. It wasn't just right. that. Um, it was much much um, much. It went much deeper. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, so like, you know, as you're falling in love with this guy in Montauk and obviously, you know, beforehand, your parents are under the impression that, and you talk about it a lot, that your dad's like, you're going to find the right girl. You're going to find the right girl. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you were, did you feel kind of guilty? Like, I don't want to say leaving your parents in the dark, but like, like waiting to tell them, be like, well, it's something way bigger than what you're interpreting right now. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was really hard. I think like, I d it did feel, it did feel, it felt terrible um, mm -hmm. going through all of that and not being able to, not feeling like I could talk to anyone about it at first. Um, eventually that summer I did um, confide in um, a couple of my housemates. Right. Um, and it was, and that was just like a huge weight off my shoulder to be able to actually like articulate these feelings out loud to another person and not feel like they were just all entirely up in in my head um but yeah i i felt like i couldn't yeah well i, I when it came to my parents even though you know they're they're liberal accepting people yeah. i was terrified i was terrified yeah. um and i think in part i was so terrified because I, even if they were going to be accepting, I was terrified that it would change the dynamic of our relationship in, 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 in ways that I couldn't even anticipate that they would just treat me differently. That was my biggest fear that they would never look at me or treat me the same ever again. Um, and I was so close with them and I just didn't want anything to change. Um, and so I, yeah, so I, I didn't immediately tell them. I needed to, first of all, I needed to, to gain a little more footing myself with, right. with what it all meant and kind of synthesize it. Um, but I did tell them, you know, uh, I did eventually tell them um, shortly after I, I confided in, in some of my friends. What was, what was that experience like? Did it, was it a weight lifted off your shoulder? Was it more like, like finally, or what, what, what was that like? It was so scary. It was, again, it was, I was petrified. I was yeah. absolutely petrified. Um, and um, yeah, it just, you know, and I was lucky, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the coming out process for some people is, you know, their family is not accepting and 
um, or worse, you know, and depending on where you are, like it coming out can, can be lethal, you know? So in the grand scheme of things, it, I'm, I'm so fortunate. Um, but it was, um, it was extremely, yeah, it was extremely scary. Um, but it ended up being okay. And I think that that was one of the things that, that I wanted to, to write about was that, you know, there are so many narratives about the hardship and the adversity and the sort of sad story, like the, the sort of tragic, the tragic stories of gay life. And I wanted to write sort of like a counter narrative to that, but it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to be honest. When I first picked up the book, I had no idea that that's where the story was headed. And when the more I read it, the more I was like, like he's done an excellent job. Just like this is his story. It doesn't have to be like this narrative of a coming out story. There, it doesn't have to be a cookie cutter way of this happening. And I thought that was like something that I had never seen before. And it, it was, it was really, it was really, really good. Like <laughs> a better term. Um, you say thanks. Yeah, but so without giving too much away, um, you describe the memoir as a defining time of how you've lived out the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. What would you say, um, would, or like, would you say that that summer has shaped you into who you are today? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like to think how, you know, in some ways, like my life really began of where the book ends. Uh, yeah. It, like it was sort of it was such a turning point and I finally I feel like beyond anything else I feel like I finally got to truly know and meet myself um in a more authentic way after the course of that summer and um that that was sort of the biggest um the biggest takeaway for me um yeah so you like the new John I I think the new John, yeah, the new John definitely drinks a lot less tequila. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The new John. That was the same dive bars though, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's been like uh, the, as soon as, as soon as there's a vaccine, like give me a Bud Light and like a cold air conditioned dive bar, you know, surrounded by people. Yeah. Let's definitely go grab a beer at uh, McManus or something. McManus, it's gotta happen. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. And then one thing I've learned book um, that I didn't initially think about until you get more into it is you are a huge music fan. Like, oh, huge. yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed. I, it's yeah. funny. Like my editor after the first draft, she, so like all writers have ticks basically. Like then sure. one of the jobs of an editor is to pick out the tick and, and, and fix it. And my editor is like, look, like, you like every single scene you are mentioning the song that was on she's like that blew my mind that you could remember that (laughs) i you know like it's the way that my memory is wired almost where like songs like transport me to specific moments and vice versa but like my editor was like look like you like you go to this bar and this song was playing and then you're at the beach and this song's playing and you're in the car and this song and she's like i'll give you five songs and they all have to be like meaningful to the, and they have to actually like contribute to the narrative. And I'm like, yeah. okay, like, I think I still managed to get in more than five songs. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But like, 
the the music from that summer i actually i have this old click wheel ipod that was gonna be my next question <laughs> that like you still have that oh i sure do yeah i wish i had it near me i'd, I'd show it to you over and do you still years. buy songs i still download songs oh my um gosh. yeah i still so it's a 20 <laughs> it's like a 20 2006 ipod with 2020 songs on it and yeah, i feel I like, that's Instagram, like my life yeah you're like wheeling this thing and you got like kygo playing i was like what <laughs> yeah Oh yeah. Like I, I still, like I put the new Taylor Swift album on it uh, yesterday and it still works, but it's awesome too. Cause it's essentially like a card catalog of all of my life's memories. You know, right. I can go back, literally I have a playlist on there from summer 2006 and I can look at all of these songs from all these different moments in my life. And like, just, it, it triggers all these memories. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was sort of this, this great um, writing tool in a way as well but yes i'm i'm a massive massive music fan do you have a favorite genre or artist oh god um i knew this would put this would this was going to be hard for you it's so hard i mean i do love i do love taylor swift speaking of taylor swift i do love her i think she's a, one of the best lyricists ever um that's a bold statement i stand no, by i don't think i don't think I you're far off we were t- we were talking about it amongst my friends especially right when she came out with the the album we we're recording this right at the end of july i think she has to be top five most um influential and iconic artists of our generation oh for sure mm-hmm. for sure yeah i love i love her i love rihanna i love like all oldies too i love mm-hmm. like motown i love like 60s music um uh, yeah, I I don't have like one favorite favorite artist really. I mm-hmm. I like I like all different kinds of music. I'm I'm the same way. I can't pick it. I can't pick one one artist. Yeah. Um, so you talked about this in the beginning when you when you first put like pen to paper. This wasn't the first book you had in mind. Or you didn't think this is how it was gonna pan out. Uh, did you find it easier or harder to write a book about yourself or a memoir about yourself? Oh man. Well, once I sort of realized that like, oh, I'm doing this, it, I wrote it in like a, like a white heat. I, wow. yeah, it became like, um, it, it, the words did come easily, especially like in the first, so I wrote the first section, um, the books divided into to three sections, a winter section, a summer section, and then a winter side, so sort of book ended, book ended by winter, mm-hmm. two winters. And I wrote the first section, like it, it just sort of addictively wrote it. And then once I got to that summer section, I knew I needed to sit down with my housemates and get yeah. their stories. So I sort of created this master template of questions that I um, asked all of them and, and really sat down with, with, the, I, I identified like six or seven that had like the front burner stories and we yeah. sat down for hours and hours um, just them telling me sort of all of the the stories and memories from that summer but also just like different stories from their lives so that I could sort of create them as fully realized characters which was sort of a strange it's a strange process to take people you know and turn them into characters with like a literary um purpose a specific literary purpose but my friends luckily were extremely generous um 
in opening up their lives to me and sharing their stories with me. Um, and uh, my goal um, in return was I really wanted um, to convey them with as much, definitely with as much authenticity and accuracy as possible, but also with like a, through a very, through like a, a lens of, of, of empathy, you know, I, mm -hmm. I wanted you, the reader to see these people as I do with, mm -hmm. which is with uh, total love, you know, they're, they're still my, my best friends. And, um, and, and I wanted, I wanted that to sort of be the guiding principle by which I drew these characters. Yeah, that's what I found part of the most, one of the most interesting parts of the book was like, you would pause and explain who Ashley was, who Matt was, who Shane was. And I was like, oh, how did he, how, like, he's like, you're putting, like, it's like the whole book, you're in your shoes. But then like for a minute, you're like in Ashley's world in New York, you're in Matt's world, you're in Shane's world. And I was like, wow, that's like, I, for a second, I was like, is this Shane's book? Or, you know, but that, I, I really, that was, that was interesting. That was going to be my next question is how did you you know, get those stories out. But what what is their general consensus of the book? Um, I think they love it. You know, <laughs> they were they were a huge part of the the actual process, the writing process in that way. For well, in terms of just getting the the raw material, um, and then they you know, as soon as I had a draft, um, they were the first to read it and. Um, because I wanted to make sure they were all, everyone was comfortable Giving you the with, thumbs up, what, yeah. with what was being um, written. And um, yeah, they were fantastic. You know, we, we had, we, we celebrated all last summer. It was just yeah. sort of a, a fun kind of joyous, a joyous occasion. And, and I think that hopefully it's something that we'll all look back on and, and be happy that we have this sort of document of this, really um intense in a lot of ways um but memorable um chapter in our lives is the plan to to still keep writing y you know if i never write another book again i'll be happy um <laughs> but but no i i would i would like to keep writing yeah i've been i've been playing around with a few ideas um and I gotta, I gotta say though, I've been really unmotivated to write during, during this whole pandemic. It's been it's hard. Tough. It's tough. It's been, There's it's not been, a lot going on to, to inspire. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, um, I, I've got a few ideas that I'm, that I've been germinating for a while that I'm pretty excited about. So that's awesome. Now I have to ask, so I'm going to read a couple of the praises for this book. So it was an American bookseller, uh, indie next pick. Oprah's, uh, Oprah's Magazine, Best LGBTQ Book of 2019, Time Magazine's Best Book of the Month, Entertainment Weekly, Best Book of the Month. Did you expect it to blow up as big as it did? Not at all. No <laughs> fucking way. Sorry, I'll don't <laughs> fucking swear on this. It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> You're good. I, no, I, I never even thought of, I would like publish it. And so mm -hmm. the fact that like it got such great reception was, it was all just, that was all just like, you know the cherry on top in a way um i i was just so you know when i think about it I'm, the thing that makes me the most happy is that you know my grandmother sort of lives through these pages now forever yeah. and the world gets to know her and how great she is um and and she lives on in those pages for for my extended family too which is really cool 
Um, but yeah, you know, I, I never in a million years expected it to get the the kind of coverage or, or praise that it did. I, and um, and a lot of that credit goes to to my publisher, Grand Central, for doing such a good job of of publicizing it and getting it out into the world. But um, but yeah, you know, like it's funny. Like I, I'm sure like everyone has a different reaction to to the book, whatever. But you know, I got on Instagram shortly after the book came out. Like some 25 year old kid messaged me and said you know, I read your book and it, it's, it, I, I now have the courage to come out to my family. Wow. And to me, like that, hearing that, it was like, you know what, this was all worth it just for that, you know, mm-hmm. to have one person be impacted um, positively in, in that way, like the, that's the coolest. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been, um, it's been wild. Yeah. So I have one last question to ask you. And so this might help um, spark the juices as, as it's been kind of, um, you know, kind of a dull summer this summer, mm-hmm. obviously with quarantine. I ask it for all my guests. So you're, you're, you have to you have to answer it. So and as a writer, I'm interested to hear this. So I ask all my guests, what would be the title of your autobiography and why? Oh, my God, it would be called Out East, right? <laughs> like That is my autobiography. But yeah, like, I knew you were going <laughs> to do I have to come up with the, I have to come up with another name? I mean, yeah, if you want. I mean, I, I like it. Out East, I mean, it, it definitely tells the story of who you are as a person and who have you, who have you become. But yeah, I, I agree 100%. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, what, oh, man, if I had to, more of like a metaphorical my autobiography, what would my, what would the title be? Oh, I don't know. Titles, as an editor, let me tell you, coming up with the right title for a book is really really hard yeah I've I've learned that through asking these questions (laughs) yeah what do other do other people like know off the top of their I feel like people like come up with like good like real housewives like they're like real housewives taglines I'm really bad at that too like it's been a wide range it's um (laughs) one person asked me like on the spot what would mine be um a couple of the people knew right away and and a couple of people have just kind of been like it would have to do with this and then tell me why. So it's been, yeah. it's been a range. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I would have to, yeah, I'd have to think about that. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it depends on like what, what moment of my life I was writing about. Right. Like right now it's a lot about like, you know, your chosen family is, is sort of, I'm in that, that phase of my life where, you know, my friends are my family and, and um, you know, uh so maybe something some play on that i don't know i don't know sorry i love it audi is perfect it's a perfect book it's a perfect story for you and it's and it was it was an awesome read so john Um, i really appreciate you coming on this has been an absolute blast and i really appreciate you telling the story a little bit more and and letting the listeners know uh it's been super fun thank you so much for having me all right well we'll well i will leave um a link to the description in the description of john's book so be sure to go check it out on amazon or you can read the audiobook. Uh, help me get through it real fast. But uh, no, seriously, this has been so much fun and we'll definitely keep in touch. Great. Awesome, Take John. Care. Thank you. What a great person. What a great story. John Glenn, an incredible individual. Thank you so much for coming on this week's show. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all go buy Out East. It is one of the best books, no matter what 
I think it is one of the best coming of age tales that I've ever read that I've ever heard. John, thank you so much. Be sure to go um, check John out on Instagram, purchase out East. I'll leave everything available in the description of this week's podcast. And um, who knew that he has quite the stories about Rick Ross. That was fun too. Uh, But that does it for this week's episode. As always, thank you all so, so much for listening and tuning in. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss an episode every single Wednesday, a new guest, a new story. So excited for this to keep going. And uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram at normalguylazyeye for all the highlights of each week's episode and more. And that does it for the shameless plugs. That does it for me. I will see you all next week.